It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Nance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoon to Small Biz. Today, you've got me. You've got Landon today. It's been a while since I've been with y'all. Uh, super excited to be back. I'm going to be hosting uh, myself as a primary host, and uh, I'll have some of my co-hosts on the next couple weeks. While my much older and worse-looking business partner is traveling uh, across the world, he's uh, over in Europe with his uh, family for, for a couple weeks. So. Uh, excited for them to go back and uh, visit the country where his son served his his church mission at, and they get to go back and meet some of the people uh, that he met with and share some of the experiences. So, Austin, we will miss you greatly, my friend. But uh, safe travels, and uh, you know, hope you have a hope you have a great trip. So. If this is your first time joining, welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz. We are a live radio show and a podcast. We are 109 episodes in now, I believe. Today's 109. We are a podcast that is put on for small business owners, by small business owners. And essentially, we have put together Tycoons and continued to run it uh, with a couple of very simple objectives, and that is to provide a platform for small business owners to come on and talk about uh, their backstory, um, their personal story, and how they got into owning and running the businesses that they run now, and to uh, you know ultimately create a community and a, a good experience for the people uh, that come on so that um, it's memorable and it's, and it's impactful. So today, we got a special guest on the show, and that is Rick Perilla. And uh, Rick has a, a really cool backstory, which we'll let him talk to us about in just a few minutes. But Rick, we've got a similar start geographically. You know, I grew up in Southern California, and I believe uh, you did as well. So we want to, yes. yep, we want to unpack that. But uh, Rick is the owner of Silverado Custom Door and Windows. So Rick, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you. Good to good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So you you grew up in Southern California, right? Where whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Charter Oak, which is I think just a hair east of Covina, probably about forty miles east of Los Angeles. I know when we used to go to the beach, it would be about oh just a hair under an hour drive um, down to the beach, down to Newport area down there. But um, you know they're all connected now. But uh, and I don't know how big Charter Oak. Charter Oak is, but uh, Charter Oak, Covina, West Covina area. Um, I was born in Pasadena. So uh, Pasadena was probably about 30 miles west of where I grew up. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I lived in Los Angeles County for about five years. I went to Long Beach State and uh, lived there for a while. Absolutely loved it there. When I was living in Long Beach, my first real job 
was down in Orange County. It was 16 miles door to door, but I had to leave 90 minutes early uh, every morning to make sure that I got there on time because I was traveling down the, it would have been the 405, 405 southbound right around, you know, 839 o'clock in the morning. And uh, yeah, that was just a nightmare. So uh, that part of Southern California, I certainly do not miss. You know, that's something that, you know, I realized growing up, of course, I've lived in um, Southern California, then moved up to Northern California, then over to the Phoenix Scottsdale area. And now I'm in the rural area um, oh, west of Fort Worth. But, you know, growing up in Southern California, you get used to a drive and uh, it's not that big of a thing. And sometimes, you, you know, it might take an hour to go 15 miles. You know how that is. But um, it's it's kind of funny because the more rural you get in Texas, people think a 15 minute drive or a 15 mile drive is a lot. And it's like, come on, man, I'm used to driving, you know, an hour or 30 to 40 miles, if not more. You know, I, I was doing work in Diamond Bar for quite a while and, you know, it wasn't a bad drive. It was 20, 30 minutes, but it's kind of like you, you know, it's like you go to your job and you just, it's, you just do what you got to do. And I think things are maybe changing a little bit with the different type of people. It just seems like the generations, things change a little bit on what the people are willing to do. But uh, yeah, I know that uh, I know that drive. Yeah. Well, just as we were kind of getting set up for the show, doing the the audio and the video and all that stuff, your lovely wife popped into the picture. So we do know that uh, we do know that you're married. But uh, yeah, take a couple minutes, Rick, and just tell us tell us a little bit more about your backstory. Tell us about where you grew up and you know what kind of household you grew up in, and tell us about you know, your wife and your kids and just anything that's important about your past sure. so that we can kind of get that picture painted. Sure. Again, I grew up, I was born in Pasadena, but I grew up in Charter Oak, walked to the elementary school, which was maybe, I don't know, a mile, but I, one of the things that I do remember about it, I grew up on a cul-de-sac and I think we had 14 kids on that street. And then the other cul-de-sacs, I mean, there was probably another 10 or so, but summer nights, I mean, that was pretty pretty great growing up, you know, freeze tag and find the flag and all the different games we used to play. But, and there were all those kids were probably within three or four years of my age. So uh, it was a great place to grow up. I started riding motorcycles and water skiing. That's kind of what we did with my family. We used to go to Lake Mojave, Lake Havasu a lot and water ski. I think I started learning, learn to ski around seven. And I think I got a mini bike about that time too. And Shoot, by the time I think I was 12 or 13, I was racing motorcycles out in the deserts, you know, surrounding the L.A. County area. It's so always like to do that. Always involved in sports. My wife, Lori, we've been married for 40 years. We met in high school and started dating when we were sophomores. And I think we broke up as juniors and got together as seniors and have been together ever since. She's been a, a great asset in my life, um, relationship-wise and business-wise. And uh, we just, uh, we get along really well. We like to do the same things. Um, we compete in triathlons and we scuba dive and water ski and wakeboard and snow ski and um, do a lot of things together. So uh, uh, she's, uh, it's been a blessing. I've got three children. My daughter, Jordan, is the oldest. She lives in Fort Worth. She's an interior designer. She studied abroad. She went to Baylor College. She studied abroad in Florence, Italy. And uh, for a short period of time and learned a lot about wines and actually worked with the sommelier and uh, got to where she was pretty darn good at that. And um, she majored as a journalist. But when she came back to 
um, the Texas area. She worked um, in wine sales, high-end wine sales to, uh, as a distributor for quite a few years. And then uh, she switched over and now she's uh, got a very successful interior design company based out of Fort Worth. My son, uh, Nathan, uh, he's uh, nine days short of a year, younger than my daughter. Uh, he worked with me for quite a few years from a young, you know, probably 12, 13 years old. Um, all the way till he was probably about 26 in the door business. Now he's a general contractor out on his own. And I miss him in the door shop, but uh, he's been very successful as a building contractor in the area. And then my youngest son, he lives over in Southern California and he's uh, an agent in the movie industry. So um, he's uh, that's just, uh, I remember when he moved over there probably around six or seven years ago. It's like, why did you ever leave Los Angeles? It's great over here. It's just like, well, we're just seeking a different lifestyle. Yeah, but, right. um, it's been kind of cool. He actually um, sent me an audition tape. Oh, it's probably been about eight months ago. Um, at the time, we didn't know what it was about, but it was about, um, oh, I had to basically do a Zoom um, audition uh, about my motorcycles and my motorcycle backgrounds and repairing motorcycles. And then I had to kind of pretend like I was polishing a motorcycle I ended up getting a call back two days later where I had to do a face-to-face with the producer and the director. And we still didn't know what it was about. And Palmer, my son, he's like, I think it's either a Samsung or an Apple commercial. So uh, I did that call back. And then I got a call about three weeks later and got hired for the job for this Apple commercial. Flew over to Southern California and went up into, was being filmed in the Hollywood Hills. It was a really neat experience. It was really uh, an enjoyable thing to do. It was it was kind of scary because I've never done anything like that before. Uh, but we were there for three days. Apple actually almost, I think they rented the whole, like three blocks of that area for the shoot. But uh, it was uh, it was quite an experience. And I really enjoyed talking with all the different, you know, workers and the boom operators and cameramen and all that. It was just, uh, it was a neat experience. But that's my youngest over there in California. And that's what he does. Of course, I... Started once I had a driver's license, I ended up getting a job with a guy. He was actually an airline mechanic that worked nights. And in the days he would, uh, he would do remodels and room additions. And I think he just needed somebody that, that had a truck that would take stuff to the dump. So I did that for him every Saturday for a few Saturdays. And then his name was Alan. And uh, he's like, hey, you interested in working for me on the weekends and after school? And so I think I had football and stuff, but it's like, you know, when I'm done, yeah, I can do that. And, and it was a really great experience because I think actually when I started work for him, we were just getting ready. He had just had the foundation set up to pour. So I was able to be part of that, setting the rebar and finishing the concrete framing. And we worked it all the way through to we were, you know, roof building. So um, as a start for somebody to, be able to learn all those different uh, trades, of course, I didn't learn them all, but I was, you know, um, being able to see how it was being done and hands-on, it was a great experience. And that kind of is what started me in the construction industry. Very cool. <clears throat> very, very cool. Well, I, I got a quick, quick story I'll share with you. Uh, I think you'll appreciate this. So I got a picture message yesterday from my mom. I've I, I gotten home in the evening and we're sitting there having dinner and my phone goes off and I see these picture messages from my mom. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And so I had to zoom in on it, but it was a a piece of paper that my mom kept from when uh, this is when I was in fifth grade. 
And, you know, when you're, you're in elementary school, you do these exercises where it's something like this, you know, okay, here's a template and we want you to write down, you know, what, what you like, what you're afraid of, what you want to be up, what you want to be when you grow up and all this, you know, all this stuff like that. So it was just a one page piece of paper and I was reading it and, you know, I just, I started cracking up, you know, because from the time I can go back and actually remember things, I have been obsessed with dirt bikes. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I was just obsessed. And and I asked my parents for years and years and years to get me a dirt bike. And they just said, no, no, no. Then finally, I was probably eight or nine years old. And I got them to buy me a, it was a Honda Mini Trail 50. So I was born in 84. So this thing was from the 70s. And so that was my first. Now, uh, did it have a tank up top or did it have that low bar where you could almost step through the bike? Because I remember a trail, but that might have been more in the 60s type era. Yeah, I think it did have a tank. Okay. Yeah, it did have a tank. And so uh, she sends me this thing yesterday. And the first line of it, this is what it says. I'm reading it to you. Uh, Wishes to be a professional dirt bike racer and make enough money. So that that's what the first line of this thing says. So we're we're kindred spirits in that sense. That well, uh, Lisa said, and make enough money because I had right. an opportunity. I was a very good slalom skier, and you know, after my, I might be getting ahead of myself, but after I left Southern California and went to Northern California, we lived right basically on Lake Shasta, within a mile, and um, used to go out. You know, I mean, you could go out, leave leave work at seven thirty, and still get you know some nice runs in before it got dark. And I was a pretty accomplished slalom skier. And I think Mike Sider had at the time had a ski school and I was skiing one night and they pulled me over and it's like, we'd like to get you involved with our school and, you know, maybe get you into some competing. And, you know, that was a really neat offer or a gesture from them. And then I started looking into what at the time, this was probably shoot early, early eighties what professional water skiers made. And it's like, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> Nowadays, you've got so many corporate sponsors and everything. I think they all do pretty well, but back then it wasn't, wasn't much to uh, impress you. Yeah. Right. Right. Did you uh, move on on the motorcycles from the trail, the trail bike? I did. I did. Yeah. I, I, w- I worked my way up. I had my next bike was a, K- a Kawasaki KX60 and then I rode a uh, Honda 80 for a while. And then I had a uh, CRF 450. Okay, that's the four-stroke. Yep, that's the four-stroke, okay. yep. And then uh, I sold that a while ago. And then I, I tried to uh, I tried to shift gears over to a, you know, a four-wheeler. And I, I think when you've, when you've been on two wheels, you know, your whole life going over to the four wheels, that transition is just, uh, it's very unnatural, you know, so... It's not the same, up, is it? It's not the same. So uh, I sold my four-wheeler a couple years ago, and I don't have anything currently, but uh, I've got uh, twins that just turned two. Wow. So, um, you know, maybe in a year or two, we'll get them on a little uh, peewee bike, and then, you know, dad will have to get a bike to ride along. There you go. There you go. That's kind of where I'm at. I think the last bike I had, I mean, I've got a road bike now, but the last bike I had was a KZ250, and my my kids, so it's been probably 10, 15 years, but they were competing in motocross and, and that type of thing over here. 
And I remember there was a local motocross race and I went there and, and decided I was going to compete in the motocross. And man, I think it was, and you know, the same thing happened. I remember, I think the first race I was like 12 or 13 and we were actually just out in the desert somewhere. And the, some, I think it was called the DRA desert racing association. There was probably 200 bikes out there and they had a race that was getting set up. And I remember I wanted to compete in it. My dad, drove up to whoever was running and said, you mind if my son gets involved in this? And he goes, well, he won't get any points or anything, but he can race along with everybody. I remember we started on top of a hill and then you dropped down and there was a bunch of whoops in the sand. And, you know, of course I take off. I think I had a, I know I had, it was a Yamaha 175 Enduro that we put the high fenders on and stuff like that. It was probably a, maybe a, oh shoot, I don't know, 70 something. But uh, back then there really wasn't motocross bikes least to my knowledge, you know, you got like an enduro and you put, took the the lights off and put the high fenders on and, you know, did some suspension work. But I remember I took off down that hill and I thought it was, Hey, everybody, until I hit the whoops and it's like, boom, 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 bam. I was down. Adrenaline was in. I jumped back on, got it running, took off, made it about another hundred yards. It was down again. But I think I hit my neck on the handlebars on that, but I've had to learn to control my adrenaline, you know, in all the things I compete in, but, uh, that was my first experience with that. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool, Rick. All right. So let's talk about Silverado custom door and windows. And as I was kind of preparing for our conversation today, I read through the notes in a little bit more detail. And if I understood it correctly, (laughs) did you, did you acquire the business or did you, did you, did you start it? So tell us a little bit about that story. Okay. So and I was, of course, I, I moved to Northern California out of high school, played a very small bit in college football, but um, that really didn't work out. My size just didn't work at that next level. But I, again, I was always in construction. I had a real good construction job. So I was a general building contractor. And then the economy started dying down. Phoenix was hopping at the time. So I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and get my license in Arizona and see if I can run a business in California and in Arizona, because I remember like Scottsdale Phoenix was just booming. So I went ahead and did all what I needed to do, flew over there, um, did my application. I think I got a a test date maybe five months later and went over there and did my testing and um, became a general contractor. And I think maybe about a year later, I moved from Northern California over to Fountain Hills, which is um, where are you over in? Are you in Tempe? No, uh, I'm in Vegas. You're in Vegas. I'm sorry. Austin, that's Austin. That's in, yeah, Austin's in uh, Gilbert. Right. So um, I ended up moving up to, to Fountain Hills. But really, the first decent job I got was, um, of course, you got as a general contractor, you got to kind of establish yourself. And there really wasn't any doors opening. But I got a job running some trim crews and um, for a company based out of, I think it was Gilbert. So I oversaw that. Of course, hanging doors, the guys hung doors, baseboard, all the interior finish work. So I got to know uh, the door shop in Gilbert, one of the guys there pretty good because I was going there a lot, getting product and stuff. And uh, I was really interested, you know, they had pre-hang door machines. They didn't manufacture anything. They basically would bring in, you know, like two panel, six panel paint grade doors or a, a stain grade door, pre-hang it on the door machine with jams, prep it for the locks. And they did multiple and then ship them off to the job sites. And it really interested me watching them do all that work at the shop. And I got to know the guy, Warren, that ran the shop pretty well. And uh, 
I don't know, something come across. He said, you really seem like you're interested in this. And it's like, it's a pretty interesting occupation. And I remember he had con- contacted me, said there was a door shop, kind of like the one that they ran in Flagstaff that was shutting down and they were selling all their equipment. So I ended up going up there, looking at what they had, bought their equipment. And it was kind of the same thing. It was kind of a production type shop where you would buy paint grade and just production type doors, pre-hang them and sell them. But I ended up buying the shop. I think there was one shaper um, that came with it where you could actually, you know, do your different coping stick cuts on your, you know, your joint joinery cuts where you could assemble a door. And I realized it's like, you know, they were in, in the, just in the Phoenix area, I think there were 30 or 40 pre-hang shops. And it's like, you know, I can't compete with that. You know, you start looking at what the costs were and the profits. And it's like, I don't want to get into where I'm competing against 30 or 40 other shops. I want to get into some specialized things. And of course, you know, all my years in construction, I worked, one of the people I worked for in Northern California, we did a lot of finished work. We worked on restaurants and bars. A lot of times we'd have to work at night when the bar was <laughs> after the bar closed, but a lot of the finished work. And that's something I really enjoy doing, um, being able to see a nice finished product and, you know, do those kind of things. But um, so I kind of decided, I, you know, of course, being around that, seeing custom doors, I always appreciated that. And um, I thought I, you know, decided I wanted to get into building custom doors. Of course, I, you know, was still doing my other thing with the trim company. But, uh, and, you know, you got to realize, you know, there was no internet back then. So not ever working manufacturing doors. It's like, you, you know, nowadays, obviously you can get on and, you know, look and find anything you want, techniques, tooling or anything. Back then there was nothing. I remember going to libraries and trying to find books on how to, you know, the different types of joinery profiles that you could get. And then, you know, even when you find out the different type of joinery profiles, it's like, where do I get them? You know, so there's there was no networking or anything at all. And basically the, you know, the most basic joinery technique is a mortise and tenon. I did that for about a year and a half. Something happened. I don't remember. I finally found a magazine. And of course, it's the same thing. You know, you go into a store or a market and you see like DIY magazines, but nothing for the trades. So just not knowing where to get any of this stuff. Um, the machine that came with that door shop that I bought, it's called a Watkins Burleson. It was made in, in Europe. And again, you know, no internet, no way to find out how to get a hold of them, you know, because there was some tooling on that. But, you know, not knowing anything about power feeders or any of those tools, it was uh, it was a struggle. But I remember once we found that one magazine that had professional tooling on it, it just opened up a brand new world. But I studied a lot on joinery. I studied a lot on woods and, um, you know, cell structures and all that you know, what happens when you kiln dry wood and what happens when water gets into wood and, you know, how to displace the water. And, you know, just because I wanted to, if I'm going to build a door, especially a custom door, I want it to be the best it can be. And um, you have to have a lot of knowledge about things. I remember when I was in, in Fountain Hills, I had my door shop in a industrial park and there was another industrial park down the way. And there was a door, actually a door manufacturer in there too. And I think he was building George Strait's doors at the time. But one thing I never forgot is they had a pile behind the shop of, gosh, 50 to 100, you know, scrapped doors. And it's because they were twisted and warped. But I went over there one time and was watching him running everything. And just they didn't take anything into consideration. They would just they had they would run material through their molder, get the sized up styles and rails. 
run them through their shape or profile and put them together, but they didn't look at the crowns of the wood. They didn't look at anything like that. And they just had a lot of rejects. And that's one thing that I can say after finally, you know, coming up to the techniques that I've come up with on building my doors, I don't get rejects because by the time we get to where the door is completed, we know it's going to be good, straight and true. That's been a really good thing. Yeah, that helps paint the picture. It gives us great context, which is, you know, I, I think just a, a natural transition into tell us about the business, you know, today. Uh, tell us, you know, kind of exactly what you guys do and what you focus on. That'll probably lead us up into our break here in the next, you know, three to five minutes. So uh, one of the things, again, in my years in construction and going up in construction, one thing that always interested me was the finished work of stuff and the finished products. And I remember when I was on framing crews, watching the finished carpenters do their work and staircases and those kind of things always intrigued me. So being able to move into that was always great and enjoyable. And it's something that, you know, in my mind, you can really be proud of. And one of the things I always try to teach my employees, and of course, you know, this day and age, that's that's a hard subject, uh, trying to keep and retain employees and the workforce is, is quite a challenge. And you're never going to have anybody. I mean, I live in a town of 10,000 people, maybe 12. But um, of course, I've got the Metroplex and everything around me. And we we work all over the country. We've got projects we've done in New York, got a lot of projects in Florida, New Mexico, Colorado, pretty much almost every state in the country. But um, so it really doesn't matter where I'm located. But of course, you know, with my demographics, trying to find employees is always tough. And usually the best I can find is somebody that might be in the construction industry, but trying to teach them the joinery and the attention to detail is basically the motto of the shop. And one thing I try to teach people is, you know, attention to detail isn't just on the doors. It's kind of a lifestyle. Like when you're cleaning up the shop, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to do it the best you can do it because that's going to build something in you that's going to require that, you know, kind of more life lessons than just, you know, what I want to produce the shop. But um, so we always wanted to do unique things. And we got to the point over the years where, we do a lot of specialty doors. Um, we did a big project in, in Orlando, Florida about three years ago. In fact, it was in Architectural Digest magazine and Interior Design magazine. The architect won an award for it. We did a pair of doors that were 12 foot tall and 18 feet long, one door. So, um, you know, and it's neat on those things because I think after talking to the architect for a while, nobody else would even touch that. And I think with being in as a general contractor and being in the building industry, I learned a lot of things about spans and structures to where I could use that knowledge on putting together large doors and know that they would stay together and stay stable and stay true. And, it, it, you know, that's a cool thing to be able to collaborate with the different architects to be able to des design a door. But another neat thing about that was when I'd moved here, um, I rodeoed for a while and I built a arena on my property. And one of the guys that I became friends with was teaching me how to weld in the arena. So by the time I got done with building this arena, I was pretty good at knowing how to weld. Well, of course, we build these huge doors. I had to build an A-frame to be able to get these things on a truck to travel all the way to get shipped over to Orlando. So that was kind of neat, too, to be able to, again, you know, it comes into the, the, the past of knowing structurals and spans and be able to, you know, you think about a door that's 18 feet long. 
and you're having to build a metal A-frame, but you've got forks on a forklift that are only four feet. So you've got quite a little cantilever hanging off the side where you got to get those forks to lift that whole thing up. And it's kind of neat when you can pretty much self-design that kind of stuff and get your forklift under it and everything works perfect. So that's always enjoyable. But um, getting back to your, your original question. So we've always tried to get into the specialty things to be unique. And as we started building larger doors, you know, six foot by nine foot, two and a half, three inches thick, and, you know, getting them, whether it was on LinkedIn or Facebook or our website, more designers and architects started seeing that. So the more that that started happening, the more specialty, extra large and specialty doors we started doing. So it's almost become a niche now. I mean, we still do a lot of everything we do is custom and it's designed just for each house. But we, um, so we still do a lot of 3080s and 4080s and things like that. But we also do a lot of really large stuff. So, and when I say large stuff, um, we did a, we got asked to do a Dream Street home this last year. And I don't know if you're aware of what the Dream Streets are. I know they've got them in, in all the big cities, but they basically take three or four of the top builders and go into a really neat elite neighborhood. Each builder has their own designer and then they build a really cool house and then people pay for like a month to go take a tour through these homes. So we just finished one up in Fort Worth. That was quite a, quite a neat thing. And the door was six foot wide, nine foot high, and then it had full glass transom pivot door um, about three inches thick. But um, we got some raised rave reviews off of that. And now we've been asked to do two of the three homes in the 2023 Dream Street for two other builders, which is kind of neat. So, and again, the things like that we're seeing on the project we did in Florida, we had an architect call us out of New York City. He was designing some specialty doors for a new wing at Rice University. We were able to work with him and do some really cool things there too. So we've done work for University of Texas, University of North Texas, and Rice University. Um, along with um, custom doors for TxDOT, Texas Department of Transportation, so a lot of the rest areas, uh, along with military. We've done a lot of military work too. So, um, but yeah, we like to get into especially fold and slide pivot doors. Um, We've been named as one of the 10 referred um, custom door builders for Fritz Jurgen, which is a European pivot system, which is really popular. Um, right now, they've got hold opens and self-closing activations, and it's pretty nice, pretty neat hardware. Yeah, interesting. All right, I gotta, I'm gonna ask you a question about another aspect of your business, but just before we do that, uh, let's just hit the pause button real quick, and uh, we'll hear a quick call to action here. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, Please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no-obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now, back to today's program. All right, welcome back, Tycoons. We're here with uh, Rick Rilla from Silverado Custom Door and Windows, uh, having a great conversation, learning a lot about uh, Rick's backstory and how he got into what he's doing now. 
All right, so Rick, I, I gotta ask you, Silverado custom door and windows. We've talked a lot about doors so far, but I have not heard you mention windows <laughs> at all yet. So talk to us a little bit, a little bit about that. Honestly, we probably do 80 of our sales, 80% are custom doors and the other 20 are windows. We are limited on what we do. And I don't want to say limited. We've limited ourselves on what we're, we do. We do casement windows. So these are all custom wood. We don't do any veneers, any engineered styles. Everything, everything we do with doors and windows is solid wood. Um, so none of the, the engineered particle board core, anything like that, everything is solid. But so what we do is casement windows, which are the crank outs. Uh, casements, we do French in-swing windows, which are hinge window that swing in and have stays. We don't do double hungs or single hungs. So um, that's kind of where we're limited on that. We just finished a resort up in Red River, New Mexico, where we actually did a large amount of windows. Uh, the place was overlooking the ski lifts up there. But uh, we did all the windows on that, which I think consists of about 30 windows. And some of them were as tall as 10 foot. And then all the, all the doors and all the flooring on that. But uh, those were all casements if they weren't fixed. And uh, one of the things, too, of course, being in the industry a long time, Lowy 366, you're probably familiar with that in the Vegas area. It's got some reflective coatings built into the glass that don't actually, it lets the light in, but doesn't let a lot of the heat in. Um, we did just the opposite in Red River. We used a Lowy um, 118. And what that does is it lets the heat in, but doesn't let it out. So that way, if you've got a lot of southward facing and you're in the cold weather climates, um, you, you're allowed to use the, the, you know, the energy and the, and the warmth from the environment to help heat your home um, instead of trying to keep it, you know, keep it out. Gotcha. So. Well, I, I'm sure you know plenty about uh, doors and a lot of other stuff around construction, being that you've been in the industry forever. But, but I will make an observation. Uh, I, I think your passion really lies in the doors, because when we talk about the doors, I can you know, visually see your face light up and you obviously have a deep passion for making a very, what sounds like very high quality door. So let's talk a little bit more about that just for a moment, if we can. So unlike you, my friend, uh, I can hang a, I can hang a, a painting on the wall and that's, that's about the extent of my uh, construction <laughs> abilities. <laughs> Uh, and I know absolutely nothing about doors other than uh, we did get a really cool barn door uh, made for us a couple years ago when the twins were born so that we could uh, we could close off what was a not an official room, but but a, a bedroom. It was kind of like sure. a second living room. and We made it into a into a more official uh, bedroom. And we did that with this uh, great uh, custom barn door that was made for us. So you mentioned that you do solid wood doors only. So I imagine there's other kinds of doors. I think you mentioned, you know, engineered, or I think that's a nice way of saying, you know, fake wood doors uh, or metal doors. So talk to us about why solid wood doors versus, you know, something different. Well, to me, and we use lots of different types of wood. We use a lot of exotics, mahogany, sapeles, um, import type woods, we only, of course, exterior doors, we're only going to use a wood that has really good exterior properties, which is a lot of it's mold resistant, bug resistant, 
Um, Spanish cedar is a great wood. It's uh, in West Indies and and not really Spain, not really Spain because it's called Spanish cedar, but a lot of it's in Africa. And a lot of it now is being grown in plantations over there. So it's very consistent. It's a real fine wood, but it's rot resistant. It's weather resistant. It's a, it's a hard wood, but it's still, we like to do a lot of our real big doors out of that because it's relatively light um, per square foot or per board foot, if you will. So there's not as much stress load on your joints, on your joinery, you know, of course, where your rails and your styles together, you have a coping stick joint, but you've also got dowels. But when you have a door that weighs 600 pounds and it's all pulling off your hinge side, there's a lot of stresses there. So we like to use the Spanish cedar because it is a lighter, it puts, again, it puts less load on it, but it's a beautiful wood, um, solid wood. I just, you know, if somebody's going to pay the kind of money they pay for custom doors, you know, they have when they started getting into, into oh, people trying to build cheaper things, they'll, they'll get a really beautiful wood, but it might be a 3 inch veneer and they just get junk wood, which is usually scrap. You know, it might be some scraps of knotty pine, little strips, maybe half inch, three quarters of an inch wide that are glued together. And then they basically wrap this 3 inch, inch, you know, quality wood veneer around it. To me, it's like if you're building a, a custom let's say rebuilding a Porsche or a Lamborghini or Ferrari. Well, you don't want to, I mean, that people do it. People put the body around a Volkswagen chassis or something like that, but you really don't have a Lamborghini there or a Porsche. It's a replica. And um, we just believe if we're going to build solid wood doors and, and in charge what we do for the doors, we're going to do it, you know, quality. And the problem a lot of times, you know, that wood inside, you know, that's part of the structure of that door too. And if you've got woods that are soft woods being wrapped by a hardwood, you know, you still, um, if moisture gets into that thing, it's going to cause a lot of instability. And that's one of the things we try to pick again when we're building, especially exterior doors, doors, woods that are stable and aren't going to move to where, you know, that door in 20 or 30 years is still going to, when it latches against the, the, the door stop, it's a nice, you know, nice level latch. It's not touching at the bottom and, you know, half inch away from the stop at the bottom. You know at the top yeah I, I understand some of that but not not most of it but yeah what, what i what i can certainly glean you know from what you're sharing is that uh you know you guys are laser focused on making just very high quality custom doors yeah and everything we do is made by hand i mean we've got machine machinery that we um that we run, you know, run our components through for, again for our joinery, but um, it's not like we, you know, throw all these pieces of scrap into a machine and you know out comes a door. And um, we do a really unique. Again, your your styles on your door are your vertical components, your rails are your horizontal components. And you know, I was talking about that one door shop in in Fountain Hills that had all those doors that just thrown in a pile um, without getting too into it. Um, you know, a lot of times you can, you know, if you're going to build an inch and three quarter door, you can buy a piece of hardwood that's two inches thick and surface it down to, you know, an inch and three quarter and, and very, in a very rapid motion, put a door together. We do, do it a lot differently. We basically get one inch material. We get it all surfaced. We stack it for a few days, crown it and grade it, um, find out which way it's wanting to move. And then we actually glue those in a press together to create a style. 
Um, so let's say you have a piece that's got, let's say I'm going to grade it as a B and it might have a slight arc on it, like the top of a football. You would do the same thing, get another grade B below it and reverse those two grain patterns and glue them together that way. That way, that same structure is fighting against one another to create a straight style. And like, say you grab these, the solid piece of two inch wood, it's always going to have a, a bow in it, whether a lot or a little. You can never get that out, but by reverse, you know, going with two thinner pieces and reversing your grain patterns, you're going to end up with a real stable door. And that's the kind of things we try to focus on. Again, I've, I've never had to replace a door in what 35 years of business. And a lot of people are replacing, you know, dozens a year. And that's just something that, uh, that we, we really strive to do. Not only do we want the door to be a beautiful, appealing look, we want it to be put together proper. And, you know, again, yeah, doors excite me. And that's kind of neat because I've been doing this a long time and I still love going to work. I'm still hands-on every day working with the guys. Um, And it's neat because every door, especially if we get into doors that are carved and things like that, every door is a piece of art. You know, we kind of consider it a piece of furniture. But um, it's neat when you can send something out the door or go install it, which we do install a lot. And just have, you know, and have people, you know, who and all over it. It's, it's rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. So, Rick, you know, there aren't a ton of people that uh, are walking this earth that can say, you know, that I've been, I, I started and in, in running, you know, successful business in the trades for 35 years. You know, so obviously you're, you're doing a few things, right? You know, you made a comment earlier, which really struck me, which was, I'm not just teaching my my guys to make these really high quality custom doors, but I'm also teaching them that cleaning up the shop to the same level of, of focus is just as important as as making the door. You know, that really resonated with me because, I think that that uh, that just gives us a really good glimpse into the, you know, the way that you kind of approach, you know, your business. So being that you've been in business for this long, I mean, just share a couple insights, you know, with us. I mean, what what have you done over all, you know, three and a half decades that have helped your business stay alive and thrive and continue to make these great products? and and maybe talk a little bit about the comment that you made about keeping and retaining employees. So yeah, just share, share some, some thoughts and insights around that, because I think what you have to share will be really valuable to the people that are listening. You know, I, I haven't thought about that question really. So it's kind of, it's kind of hard to come off, um, come up with something real quick, but you know, of course being we've gone, I've gone through recessions, you know, I've gone through, you know, in the eighties, and uh, even in the 90s, you know, we've seen a downturn. One of the things that I felt with me is and, and being in the construction industry before I got into the door business, you know, you would see when you'd have the economy take a turn for the worse. So many people would kind of just disappear. And then all of a sudden, when the economy got good again, all these people would come out of the woodwork. And it's kind of it kind of started happening. I, I see a lot, not necessarily in the door industry because so many companies have gone out of business. It's, it's kind of, you know, especially the custom door business, there's just not people teaching that trade anymore. Mm-hmm. And it, it's scary because it's a dying trade and they're getting a lot of machines to do a lot of things. But 
you know, the level of quality isn't there. But the bad thing is people are starting to see less and less of the quality. So a lot of people are starting to accept a lesser quality product. And that's in everything I see. I mean, we, of course, we go on job sites and, uh, you know, measure openings and stick levels on walls. And and the quality has has dropped drastically over the years. And, and that's sad. But, you know, the workforce, I think, in all the construction industry has, has dropped a lot. But to me, um, the few things that I can say is stick with it. I mean, there's been times, I mean, times haven't always been great. There's times that are really tough and it's great to have a wife that'll stand by you and support you, you know, when things get, you know, kind of tough. It's like, you know, I've been to the point, it's like, shoot, where's the next job coming, you know? And thank God the phones rang. But um, I tell you about the last 10, 15 years, it's just been constant. I've actually, this last year, we worked almost a year straight. I think I had six Sundays off and I finally got caught up. Now, that was one thing I did last year during the COVID or the year before. It's like a lot of places were closing down and it's like, I've never felt like I wanted to turn work down. Um, And I took on a lot of jobs and I got behind, but of course, you know, fighting with the COVID and shortages in the lumber industry, it, it it was a trial but we survived it. And I think we finally got caught up about five or six weeks ago. So I've actually had, you know, the last six six weekends home, which has been kind of nice, get to go watch the grandkids play their sports and kind of, you know, get back to a a normal routine. And, you know, we've made a little bit of a decision too, that we're going to start picking and choosing a lot of our jobs because we can do that now. Um, You don't have to take every job that comes along. But again, to me is being consistent is just sticking around and fighting through, um, hanging in there, get as much knowledge as you can with, you know, with what's going on in your industry. I mean, to me, knowledge is, is a lot. There's a lot of things that are changing and you need to be apprised on all that. Um, one of the suggestions that I would give to anybody that's just starting out is to me, learning the business was never difficult. I was always hands-on. I've never shied away from taking any, any new challenges, you know, even from, you know, starting a business in in two different States, I was never worried about being successful because I always knew that I knew what I was doing. And I thought somebody else can do it. There's no reason I can't do it. But the one thing I would say is learn how to run a business and handle money because no matter how good you are um, at building doors or building houses or, whatever industry you're in, you need to know how to handle and manage your money. And uh, that was something that was a learning experience over the years, you know, from when I started that I never had. Um, So it was kind of hands-on learning and trial by error. And uh, finally got that figured out, but probably 20 years too late. (laughs) So. Yeah, well, we we're we're uh, we're we're trying to solve a sliver of that problem for some folks. You know, that's something that we, we talked to a lot of our business owner clients about regularly, just trying to, just trying to shift the mindset a little bit from just constantly kind of looking in the rear view mirror, you know, and then seeing where you've been and then, you know, looking at your bank account to understand where you are to this different approach of let's look forward through the windshield and, and kind of project out into the future and anticipate some of your needs you know, in the future, as opposed to kind of just being, you know, more reactive uh, to the past. But that being said, you said something there that was really caught my attention. And I think 
in younger generations, really including my myself, I'm 38, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs in their in their 20s and 30s, there's this mentality of, you know, building a, a business in a very short amount of time, you know, two, three, five years, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're this huge company and you're wildly successful. And the reality is, you know, Austin talks a lot about this on the show. You know, the reality is, is that is a fraction of 1% of companies that, that have that kind of a trajectory. And I, I love how, you know, transparent you were in the comment. You said, here we are now we're, we're really in this position where we can, we can pick and choose the jobs that we want. And, you know, you're 35 years into your business, you know? And so I think that's just a really good lesson for us younger generations to, to just to learn and understand that, you know, building a successful, sustainable business that you want to be around, you know, for decades into the future, you know, this does not happen overnight. This does not happen in one year, typically not in three or five or even 10, you know? Um, so just extending, you know, the outlook, you know, for building a business, I think is just something that is just extremely important because that's the reality is that a lot of, you know, successful business owners, their first three or five or 10 years in business probably weren't all that successful, but the next, right. the next five, the next 10, the next 20 years, that's when you really start to see the fruits of your labor. And, you know, a short comment on that being around so long, you know, I've established a lot of connections with mills over the years, lumber mills, because we buy mill direct most of the time. You have to buy larger quantities. But when COVID hit, I mean, we we're doing some really multi-million dollar homes over in, in South Texas right now that we're going to really be doing for about the next three years. And they wanted some specialty woods. And, you know, with the COVID stuff, so many mills had shut down. And, you know, we're searching around, but I mean, I've got probably 13 or 14 mills that I've been dealing with over the last 20 years. And it's kind of neat to have that resource to be able to go. And we've been able to find the, the lumber. Now, of course, the costs aren't, you know, what we were hoping, but uh, that always gets passed on to the builder, unfortunately, but it's nice. And again, you know, it takes all those years of getting to know people and, and doing business with people to be able to have those connections that end up paying off in the long run. You're not, you know, you're not just establishing new relationships. They've been around for a while and that helps. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect segue into our, our, our closing thought here. Uh, so relationships, you know, obviously business has been around, you know, been successful for, you know, over three decades. You've got some kids that are certainly successful in their own rights, but what's the future look like, you know, for the company? Are, are you, are you trying to get Nathan uh, back in here to take this thing over and run it for the next? I don't think Nathan will, but I've got a couple of young guys that are working for me that seem like they have potential. I've had a couple of people a few years ago that I thought would be able to, because I don't necessarily want to get out of the business hundred percent, but it'd be nice to be able to go on a trip for a couple of weeks at a time and know everything is going okay. And, you know, some guys, I had a guy that was with me for quite a few years. He actually started with me when he was, uh, didn't even graduate high school, a very intelligent guy. And I had made the comment after about three years that, you know, we could groom, possibly groom him to, you know, kind of start running things. But 
all of a sudden, and you know, and he was young, but all of a sudden he wanted things to start happening way before he was ready for that to happen. And, and, uh, that didn't work out. So again, the challenge is, um, is finding good quality employees and then hopefully something can go from there. Um, and it's hard to say, it's really hard to say, you know, oil fields, a big occupation around here, and it just hasn't worked out to be able to hire oil field employees because it's kind of a different mentality of worker. I mean, they're used to pipe wrenches and sledgehammers and we're used to finesse. So mm-hmm. very hard to switch somebody over from that. But, um, and you know, the high school used to have what they called a DECA program where somebody interested in the trade um, would basically take fifth period and sixth period and then work a couple hours after and, and learn. And it's been neat to be able to have those guys because they've gone on into some pretty substantial construction jobs after they graduated, you know, college. And they always, you know, reach out and, and talk to me about the things I've taught them. But, you know, the challenge, yeah, the challenge right now is finding a good, solid workforce. And, uh, you know, I've got outside salesmen that talk to me a lot. And, you know, some of these cabinet shops that used to have 50 to 75 employees are, are down to family members. And they just, you know, they button their, button their head against the wall because just trying to find a workforce and it's tough. And I don't know how, how people are surviving without working, but it seems like they are, but I've got a, I've got a small team at my shop. I've got four guys that are all working out pretty darn good. And, uh, you just hope that it can continue on. So there's always somebody in the, you know, in the wings, but you like to keep the same guys for long-term. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they, they say it's uh, a whole lot less expensive to, uh, you know, keep the guys you have than to, you know, go out and find a new one and, and have to train them. So, oh yeah, that's that's a long period of time. If you get a chance, uh, Rick, you should listen uh, to last week's. I think it was last week's episode. So Josh Josh Zolin and uh, his dad. His dad's. I think Josh is the son. It's a father and son. I, I can't remember the dad's name. Was that Windy Windy City? Their equipment was it Windy City? Yes, like that. Josh and Joel Zolan. So yeah, they they were actually our first guests on the show. Yes, I did watch that. Oh, you did? Okay, cool. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So he he wrote a book called uh, "Blue Is the New White," and he's just a big advocate for for the trades. And so uh, I think uh, you would be you know preaching preaching to the choir uh, having a conversation with him. So maybe you guys you guys should connect sometime, but. Uh, Anyway, Rick, we're we're pretty much you know out of time here. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed you know the conversation with you. Learned a lot about uh, doors as well, which I've enjoyed. I probably but, confused um, you more than helped you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little, but uh, yeah, Rick. So um, if people want to get in touch with you, can you just share with us you know one or two ways? What's the best way for people to reach out to you? If they sure, want? internet. Internet is uh, www.silveradodoors with an S dot com. Uh, phone number 940-362-4571. Um, or you can just look up, you know, custom doors on the internet or custom doors, Texas, and we'll show up. Okay. All right. Fantastic, Rick. Well, thank you so much for, for joining. Uh, you are certainly a, a, a true tycoon and we look forward to uh, following your continued success. Landon, thanks so much for the opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure, Rick. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, 
proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.